Well, friends, as we've sung some songs today, um, I realize this is true of me. I trust it's true of you. We say this a lot here, like in the welcome and throughout the services. Like we're not sure how everybody's doing, like mentally or emotionally, how your week has been. Some people have had really good things happen this week. Some people have had really bad things happen this week. Some people have had both happen this week. Your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences, those things will ebb and flow and fluctuate with the hour, if not the minute. If there is ever going to be like rock under our feet or the steadfast anchor of the soul, it must exist outside of us. It has to be in Christ. It has to be in God himself and his character and the fact that he never changes. And so that's where our hope and our confidence lie, and that's where our joy and our hope is found. And so let's go to the Lord now and ask him for his help as we look to his word. We've come to the end of this relatively brief sermon series in Micah, uh, the seventh of seven sermons today. But before we look to these three verses, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and acknowledge that uh, we're frail and that there are many different thoughts and many different feelings that are circulating around inside of us. We have come here today to glorify you. And perhaps the way that we glorify you most is by confessing and demonstrating our utter dependence upon you. The fact that we need you for anything good. The fact that we're helpless in and of ourselves to do anything good for ourselves, spiritually or eternally speaking. We're in need of righteousness that we don't have. We're in need of atonement that we can't make. And we're in desperate need of your spirit now as we look to the Bible. So we pray that you'd be good to us. We pray that you'd show up in this time. We pray that we would think rightly about ourselves according to your word and we pray most of all that you would show us yourself and your steadfast love in your word and that you would show us Christ. We pray that our hope would be bolstered and our assurance and our faith strengthened. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our text today, we're going to be looking at the last three verses of the book of Micah. This will be a very small text compared to a number of them that we've done in this sermon series. But the verses that we're going to look at today begin with the prophet asking a question. Who is a God like you? The answer to that is there isn't one. There is not a God like the Lord. He is utterly unique. And the God of the Bible, or as maybe could be termed even the God of Christianity, has no God like him in the universe. And because of that, Christianity itself, this religion that comes from this book, Christianity itself is also utterly unique in the scope of world religion. We have considered these things before. What makes Christianity so unique is not its morality. It's important that we would own that. Now, just to be clear, God's law applied at the heart level is a higher standard of righteousness than any other standard in any other religion. 
I'll say that again. God's law applied at the heart level is a higher standard of righteousness than any other standard of any other religion. So it's not as though when we say that Christianity is not about its morality, it's not as, it's not as though the morality within Christianity is lacking. It's not as though there's some kind of hedging on the standards of righteousness. It's not what we mean at all. But if it's not morality that makes Christianity unique, what is it? The answer to that, friends, I would stake my ministry on this. What makes Christianity unique is its message, its story, perhaps even more precisely put. It is the story, the news that's happened. Something has happened in time and space that we now proclaim, that we herald. It is the story of what God has done through Jesus Christ in order to accomplish redemption. That is what makes our religion unique. There are all kinds of things that we can talk about in terms of how we live together underneath all of that. But it is that story of Christ crucified for sinners, accomplishing righteousness for unrighteous people, God making a people for himself through what Jesus accomplished. That is what makes Christianity unique. There is nothing like it in all the world. There's no God like our God. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to Micah chapter 7. As I've already said once or twice, we're going to be looking at the last three verses of the book. So that would be verses 18, 19, and 20. I know that we'll have the verses up here on the screen for you. If you didn't bring your Bible or you're not used to looking at one, don't sweat it. We'll have verses provided for you so that you can track with us and follow along. Just really quickly as we're making our way and doing your Bible drill maybe uh, to find Micah 7:18, just a, a brief flyover of the book of Micah, considering we're in the last sermon, uh, it seems like this might be good to do. The major message, the summary of the first seven chapters would be something like this. Chapter one and chapter two, we saw that judgment is coming on God's people, both the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital city, Samaria, and also the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city, Jerusalem. Judgment is coming because of the sin of the people. God is quite clear. In particular, judgment will come for the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians would come in military conquest and conquer the northern kingdom. The judgment would come for the southern kingdom over a hundred years or so later at the hands of the Babylonians when they would come and invade and conquer Jerusalem eventually in 586 BC. Excuse me. We know that as predicted by the prophet Micah that God's people would be exiled, that they would be removed from their land. They would be deported. They would be scattered. And in the case of many in Judah and in Jerusalem especially, most of those people would be sent to Babylon, to the heart of paganism, to the belly of the beast, so to speak. God's people would be sent there. Through all of this, though, we've seen, especially at the end of chapter 2 into 3, 4, and following, that through all of this judgment, God remains unswervingly committed to his promises and to his plan of redemption. In chapter 5, we learned about the ruler who would come from Bethlehem. How would this be done? 
How would this be accomplished? It would be through this great ruler whose coming is from of old. This great ruler from Bethlehem would shepherd his people in the name of the Lord. He will be great to the ends of the earth, the prophet says. And he will be his people's peace. This great ruler, as we've rejoiced in and as we've considered, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. We also last week considered from chapter 6, the bulk of it, into chapter 7, that things would not be good in Israel, like for a while. That misery would be the order of the day. But yet, God ultimately will restore the hope of his people. He will save them and he will exalt them. That's the book in a flyover. And here we are today, trying to put a bow on this sermon series, looking at the last three verses of this wonderful book. Let's read Micah 7, 18 through 20 together, and then we'll consider our plan for the rest of our time. So put your eyes on verse 18. Follow along with me as I read. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. It's a wonderful conclusion. The prophet has given this message of judgment and redemption interwoven with that judgment. And what's he going to leave the people with? He's going to leave it with this message of the steadfast love of God. The fact that he is unswervingly committed to his people's eternal good and that he's going to keep every single promise that he's made. It's a great place to land. And so that's where we're going to land today, even in our sermon series that we've made through this this book. So I have three points and a conclusion for us today. So some people might be saying, wasn't that four points, brother? Sure. If that's how that works for you, great. In my mind, it's three points and a conclusion. So we're going to do this. The Lord is a God of steadfast love. That's a statement. The Lord is a God of steadfast love. So, number one, he does not retain his anger forever, but rather shows compassion to his people. The Lord is a God of steadfast love. So, number one, he does not retain his anger forever, but rather shows compassion to his people. If you put your eyes on the second half of verse 18, you'll see those words almost verbatim. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And then in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. Those words are pretty astonishing. Like if you've been making your way through the book of Micah with us, we've thought a lot about the iniquity and the sin and the transgression of the people because it's all over the place. God is rightly wrathful against sin. And he has in righteousness told the people, look, you, you in one sense will reap what you've sown. My law is clear. You violated it. And now you will bear the consequences of your law breaking. We've considered why and how God has done that. But it's important for us as we're thinking about the fact that God 
will not be angry forever and that he will again show compassion to his people, he would be justified in his anger if he retained it forever. Like, this is hard for us. Right, so just truth and advertising, public service announcement, this is hard. God would be justified in his anger if he retained it forever. And I mean his anger against us, his anger against humanity. Now, this is an incredibly unpopular message. Like, you want to empty the parking lot in a hurry? Start talking like this. It's because our sin, brothers and sisters, our sin is great. We tend to underestimate it grossly. We tend to think that our sin, well, it's kind of bad. It's not that big a deal. Or we tend to think way too highly of ourselves. I'm a pretty good person overall. Make some mistakes, but everybody does. That's why it's such a tough pill to swallow. And it always has been. Let's be clear about that. It's not as though this was easy to hear 2,000 years ago. Humanity has not changed. There's nothing new under the sun. This message has never been one that people hear and say, oh, yeah, great. It sounds good to me. Our sin is great primarily because of whom we have sinned against. As one theologian has put it, Our sin is cosmic treason against an all-good, all-sovereign, infinitely holy God. This world has become the arena in which we commit this cosmic treason against the all-good, infinitely holy God of the universe. And so our sin is an infinitely, like, cosmic scope big deal. God is upright. The scripture's clear. He is upright and never sins. He is good completely. There's no darkness in him. There's no shadow within him, no varying due to change. So when we read about his anger, his anger is not like our anger. Our anger is this kind of like visceral thing. It ebbs and flows. We're capricious. We're this way one minute and a different way the next minute. That's not how God works. His anger and indignation against sin is derived from the fact that he is upright and completely good. He hates evil. What kind of God would he be if he did not hate evil? He would no longer be good. He would no longer be upright if he said evil is okay with me, even sometimes. He has said that he will punish evil. And the problem is, we have done evil. Every one of us. Corruption and iniquity is a part of our DNA. And so that's why when we read words like this, he won't retain his anger forever. He will again have compassion on us. Those are astonishing words. We feel entitled to those words, but we're not. We feel like, well, of course he should love us. Of course he should show compassion. His compassion is astonishing. He is gentle and he is tender toward his people. He is a loving father. As the psalmist writes, as a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
It's Psalm 103. Those are beautiful verses. The fact that the God of the universe shows compassion to us as a loving father in spite of our sin. And he is gentle towards us and compassionate towards us because he remembers our frame and he remembers that we are dust. As the many of the confessions will say, there is a misery associated with being a fallen human being. You're bearing that right now. There are good things going on in your life and there are hard things going on circumstantially in your life. There are hard things going on inside of you right now. And that is a part of the misery of being a fallen human being. But this is not lost on God. He is not cold. He is not removed and distant. He is compassionate and he knows your frame. And remember too, Whenever you're like, if you're like me and you're going through hard stuff and your tendency is to think that God is somewhere far away. And our tendency is to doubt his character and to think that, well, he's just sitting off somewhere in the heavens while I suffer. Remember that God, the son took on human flesh and dwelt in this wasteland called fallen earth. As The song goes, talking about Jesus becoming man. Wrap our injured flesh around you. Breathe our air and walk our sod. Rob our sin and make us holy. Perfect son of God. God is compassionate. God the son in particular knows your struggle. He can empathize and sympathize with us in our weakness. God not only is a compassionate father, not only has God the son been tempted as we are, not only does he know our weaknesses, not only is he acquainted with grief and suffering, we also know and have rejoiced in, even from Micah, that God is the shepherd of his people. He looks upon the plight and the predicament of his people. He sees that his people are like sheep without a shepherd. He sees that the shepherds who have been put over them are corrupt and have neglected them. And what does he say? Most famously in Ezekiel 34, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my people. I will go and gather them from the nations to the places where they've been scattered on a day of thick darkness. I will go get them and I will bring them into a pleasant place. And he himself will watch over his sheep, his people. He will care for them and protect them. He is a compassionate God. Don't miss this piece. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God delights in steadfast love. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything he pleases. It delights him to show steadfast love to his people. He loves you. He loves me. Why he loves us, that's kind of the mind blow. You know, we're in Deuteronomy 7, God will say to the people of Israel through Moses, God didn't love you, doesn't love you because you're great. He actually loves you in spite of the fact that you're the smallest of all the people. You have nothing to boast about. And then he goes on to say, Essentially, God loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. He delights in steadfast love. As he says through the prophet Hosea, how can I give you up? 
O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me and my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, meaning on you. Christ will bear it. I will not execute my burning anger for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath on you. Christ would take it. All of this compassion stuff and the fact that God would not retain his anger forever, it does kind of beg what's coming next. How is it that a God, I've already alluded to this and that's fine. I'm fine to kind of steal my own thunder with Jesus. You know, that's cool with me. How is it that a God who is completely holy, completely righteous, completely just, how is it that he would show compassion to sinners? That's that's a huge tension that needs to exist in our minds as we read scripture. How can a completely holy, righteous, and just God show compassion to sinners? The Lord is a God of steadfast love, number one, so he does not retain his anger forever, but rather shows compassion to his people. Number two, he forgives, crushes, and removes his people's sin. I'm using those words on purpose. The Lord is a God of steadfast love, so number two, He forgives, crushes, and removes his people's sin. So put your eyes on verse 18, the very beginning. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? So there's that piece, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Verse 19, the second half, put your eyes there. The Lord, we see, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Like the depths of the sea, meaning like bury those things where they'll never be seen again. I know I've used this phrase before when we've kind of been overhauling like our website and stuff at the church like a year and a half ago or something. The website originally was not so great. And when we were talking about it, I remember telling a couple of the guys involved in it. I was like, yeah, like kill that part of the website and bury it like at the depths of, in the depths of the ocean. Like I never want to see that again. I don't want anybody to be able to find that on the internet, right? This kind of image. He's going to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. But even above that, we read after, in verse 19, the beginning of it, he will again have compassion on us. We read this. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. That's where I get that crushing. Idea. He's going to crush our sin. He's going to trample it underfoot. Okay. So all of this, this pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression and treading iniquities underfoot and casting our sins into the depths of the sea. This is like, you can write down this reference. We're just going to talk about it. This is like Leviticus 16 stuff, day of atonement stuff. You can read it later. I'm just going to kind of describe it to you. This is one day in the year where God in the law told the people of Israel, that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, this one day of the year, where the presence of God was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the priest would go in there and make a sin offering for himself. He would put some of the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, right? Then he would take two other animals in. There was a sin offering for the people. Sin offering would be slaughtered. And again, that blood put all over the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of Israel. But then there was a second animal for the people's sake. 
And this animal, the priest, would take the goat. He would take both of his hands. I mean, the Lord's very clear. Take both of your hands, put them on the goat's head, and confess over the animal all of the sins of the people of Israel. Place those sins on that animal and then send him, send it out into the wilderness. What was God teaching his people? He was teaching his people, yes, about his holiness. And he was teaching his people about what Christ would do. He was teaching his people that Christ would both atone for their sin, make it right, and he would remove it from them as far as the east is from the west. It will be taken from you. Christ will bear it. This language of Micah 7 also sounds like Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Let that land on you. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. It's what we deserve. He doesn't repay us for our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And all God's people say, amen. This language of Micah 7 is Romans 3 kind of stuff. Like why the reason that we do this, like understand Bible with Bible is so that we can look at it and see how it all hangs together. What better way to illustrate one text of scripture than to look at another one so that we can see it in all of its wonder and all of its glory and all of its consistency. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, just write it down, just listen. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Christ is put forward as a sacrifice, dying as a satisfaction for sinners. The wrath of God is satisfied in what Christ did. Paul goes on. This was to show, we see in our text, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. How could he do that? He's righteous. This, Jesus being put forward as a propitiation, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, a.k.a. the sins of his people in the old covenant. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how he pardons iniquity. This is how he passes over sin. Christ is coming. In this context, Micah 7. He can show steadfast love to his people. He can pardon their sin. He can deal with their sin. He can show them grace and mercy and compassion because Christ is coming. All of scripture, all of history, all of redemptive history in particular 
It centers on Christ. It hinges completely on him. Micah 7, 18 to 20. So I don't know what you came here thinking that you would hear today. I, I can't imagine anybody's surprised. I mean, I'm not acting like that. But sometimes if you went into many church contexts and you saw that the sermon was going to be on Micah chapter 7, I don't know what people would think they're going to hear. But Micah 7, 18 to 20 screams Christ crucified for sinners. It's what it says for anyone with eyes to see Christ crushed for sinners so that they might be saved. It's what it's about. Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. And by our, I mean the people of God, then, now, and anytime. We, God's people, have sinned. The Bible's very clear. And it's forgiven in Christ. We have committed iniquity, and the Lord treads it underfoot. He crushes it. We have broken God's law, and that law-breaking has been taken from us and removed from us. It's nowhere near us anymore. And we need righteousness, and it's been counted to us. All by faith in Christ alone, apart from any of our works, apart from any of our striving, any of our obedience, faith. This message is God's gospel. There's no God like him and there's no message like this. Nowhere to be found. This matters, friends, like this understanding and like this, the way that we're even wrestling with Micah chapter seven, the way we've wrestled with the entire book of Micah, this understanding of God's gospel is so important for us. I mean, put quite simply, like existentially in your experience, it's your lifeline. It's your only hope. I don't care if your day's going great or if it's terrible. Your life is fleeting. Your only hope is this. There are passages all through the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are clear that sinners will not dwell with God. Old Testament and New Testament. It's not just the Old Testament that says that sinners won't dwell with God. Many people grow up in the church being taught something almost like that. It's ridiculous. There are passages all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, that are clear that God rewards those who do good with eternal life, and He punishes and judges those who do evil. Old and New Testament, that, that principle is upheld. It's the truth. So here's the thing, too. When we go to the Scripture, it's not a good practice to start relativizing what it says. It's not a good practice to relativize the righteous standard of God. This is how oftentimes it's handled. Like you look at a text that says, well, these kinds of people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And we say, well, yeah, that just means that a person's life who is characterized by that won't be in the kingdom of God. It's not what it says. What it says is anybody who does these things won't be with God forever. That's a problem. It's perfection or nothing, right? I'm just going to read some stuff. This matters for us so much, friends, as we look to God's word. 
And we think about his righteousness and the reality of judgment and our sin and how we could ever be shown steadfast love. Again, it's not just the Old Testament that's clear that sinners won't dwell with God. This is Galatians chapter 5. This won't be foreign to those who've been here for long. I preached this not that long ago. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another New Testament text. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, Revelation 21.8. Romans 2, 6 through 11. God's a righteous judge. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Where's Paul going in that section of his letter? God's a righteous judge. He rewards good. He punishes evil. He'll give those who do good eternal life. He will judge those who've done evil. The problem is nobody's good. Romans 3, 9 to 20. There is not one righteous, no, not one. They all together have become worthless. What's the point? What's the point? What are we talking about? It's that when we read passages about steadfast love and pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression and not retaining anger and treading iniquity underfoot and having compassion, as I've already said, and casting our sins into the depths of the sea, what's the point? The point is that all of God's righteous requirements have been met in Christ. All of God's righteous requirements have been met in Christ. You and I fail to meet God's righteous standard all the time. Our only hope for salvation exists outside of us in Jesus. The law is good. The law is holy. And the law is awesome. And it can't save anybody. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done it. Live in him. You understand the difference? Do this and live. Do is law. Christ has done it. Live in him. Done is gospel. In Christ alone, God forgives sin. In Christ alone, God crushes iniquity. In Christ alone, does God remove his people's sin from them. The Lord is a God of steadfast love. And so number three, he is unswervingly faithful to his people. Number three, he is unswervingly faithful to his people. Put your eyes on verse 20. You, God, the Lord, will show faithfulness to Jacob 
and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Quite simply, God keeps all of his promises. I break mine a lot, so do you. As I've referenced before, Justin Timberlake is a good theologian, at least in some lines of his songs. People make promises all the time. Then they turn right around and break them. It's true. Not so with the Lord. He's never broken a promise, ever. He will never leave or forsake his people. He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Before the foundations of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit determined to save a people. That's why the scripture talks like it does. Before the foundations of the earth, this was so. Because God decided in eternity past that he would redeem a people from the mass of fallen humanity. A covenant of grace was given in Genesis chapter 3, right after sin entered the world. He promised that one would come, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head, through whom redemption would be accomplished. And that covenant, as we know, was fulfilled by Jesus, God the Son who took on flesh. So here's the the big takeaway with respect to God's unswerving faithfulness to you and me. It is God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him that will carry the day. It is God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him that will carry the day. So real talk, if our salvation, like final salvation, right? If it depended upon us at any point, to any degree, we would have no hope. And you're like, well, yeah, bro, but couldn't we do just like that little bit? No, biblically, no. Assess yourself honestly. If over the course of your life, something that's decisive in your salvation hinges upon your ability to do it, that's what the hymn writer would call sinking sand, right? If our salvation hinges at all on our faithfulness, we will not be saved. That's not to say that how you live is irrelevant. I think we're pretty clear about that. But if our salvation hinges at all on our faithfulness, we will not be saved. That's because we are just like God's people have always been, namely sinners. One of the great things about the Bible, when you start to read it from a redemptive historical perspective, is when you go through the Old Testament, you read about tons of people who are just like you. David and Moses and Samuel, pick your guy. Or girl, Rahab, Ruth, pick, pick whoever. The first thing those individuals would be saying about themselves is like, if you think I'm in the Bible, primarily as a moral example to follow, you have lost your mind. I am here first and foremost to point you to the only one who could ever save you. As it is, brothers and sisters, we stand on the promises of God. We stand on the firm foundation, right? Laid in his word. And we stand on Christ, the solid rock. We know that we will not be lost because frankly, God will not allow it. If we could be lost, if we had anything to do with it, we would be lost. But God is utterly faithful. There's coming a day when we'll all be with him. 
And on that day and then forever after that, we'll praise him for his faithfulness. We sing a song here sometimes. The last verse goes this way. One day all things will be made new. And I'll see the hope you've called me to. And in your kingdom paved with gold, I'll praise your faithfulness of old. He has been faithful. He's always faithful. Every single moment he's faithful. So now we've come to the conclusion or point number four, if that's your flavor. This is for me. I have no real heading. This is what I want to leave you with from Micah. So if Micah's put a bow on this book that he wrote with these verses, I'm going to aim to do that for this sermon series right now. So another just kind of honest confession on the part of all of us. You have failed God. You have failed God. And you will again. You will not want to. If you're born again, you will not want to fail him. Yet you will. I will. And at the same time, in the midst of our failing and our falling, there is real peace and there is real hope and there is real rest in Jesus Christ. There is really nothing to be afraid of. We read that earlier. We've not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back, or a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery. We've been given the spirit of adoption as sons, through which we call Abba, him call him Abba, Father. There is nothing to be afraid of. This is because your sin, all of it, like in full, at every level, has really been dealt with for good. And it's not just some hypothetical thing that Christ accomplished. Like he took your sins, your law breaking, the particular things that you've done, your particular shame. He took it and he paid for that. There is a penalty that you owe the law. You owe God because you've broken the law and Christ died in your place. There is nothing to fear because you have been counted with all the righteousness that you will ever need. That's an amazing thought. All the righteousness that we will ever need was counted to us the moment we trusted Christ. There's nothing to fear. There's real peace and hope and rest because Christ himself intercedes for you. He pleads the merit of his life and his blood for you. In Christ, you have been raised to walk in newness of life. And in him, one day, you will be raised imperishable to live with God forever. And the greatest part about this, friends, is that all of this stuff that we're talking about, it's all finished. The work is over. In every way that matters. You're still being sanctified. You're still being transformed. So am I. But everything that is decisive with respect to how you will spend the rest of your days and then forever after that, the work is done. And it's not just finished, it's free. 
You didn't earn it. And you never could earn it. You've been granted to drink from the water of life without payment. That's how, like in the book of Micah, the transgression and the sin and the iniquity of the people can be put right next to and intermingled with redemption. Because the redemption of the people was always contingent upon what the Messiah would do. So, good question here that you might be asking. I hope you're asking this. Okay, brother, thank you for that. Like, praise God for Christ and the gospel. So what, what do I do now? What am I supposed to do now? It's a good question. So these might be like practical takeaways or application. And this is me talking with you. So first point of application, trust Christ. I'm unashamed to say it. It's the greatest and first and final piece of application from any text of scripture. Trust Christ. Look to him. Rest in him. Hope in him. Take your eyes off yourself and put them on Christ. That fundamental reorientation changes everything. But we're going to move forward. The next thing that I would say, like, okay, what are, what are we supposed to do? God's very clear in Micah about the transgression and the iniquity of his people. Sin is bad. Sin is wrong. So here, very simply, if God's word calls something sin, flee from it. If God's word calls something sin, flee from it. Fight against it. And do this as you trust Christ and rely upon the Holy Spirit to work in you. I trust that's pretty straightforward. You're not doing it to earn your salvation. You're doing it because you can. You have God's Spirit in you. You've been born again. You do it because in your good moments, you want to. Next thing, in thinking particularly about Micah chapter 6 and the great verse, Micah 6, 8, what are some things that we should do? What are we supposed to do? Here's one, do justice. Do justice. So be upright in what you do. In all of your dealings with people, be honest. Be forthright and not deceitful. Don't take advantage of people. In particular, don't take advantage of those who are weak. Protect even and care for the weak and the vulnerable. Do justice. Another one. Love kindness. That's right from this book. Love kindness. So be kind to one another. That's such a simple exhortation and yet so hard to do. We don't need to complicate this, right? I mean, like, I trust this becomes more clear as we make our way through Scripture. We don't need to, like, really codify and make this so complicated. It's so simple. We trust Christ, and then there are these exhortations that are so massive in their implications. Do justice. Love kindness. Be kind to each other. Love each other. It can be so difficult for us to be kind in certain scenarios and situations. So rather than thinking about like 17 things to be concerned with, maybe put that kindness piece up near the top and just think about that for a while. How can I be kind and love 
my brothers and sisters, love my spouse, love my kids, love my friends, love my coworkers, love my neighbor. Live underneath the steadfast love of God that we've been thinking about and rejoicing in. Live underneath that banner in a manner that's consistent with it. Christ exposes that kind of hypocrisy, does he not? In one parable that he famously tells about the ungrateful servant. It doesn't jive, right? When we, on the one hand, will rejoice in steadfast love and grace and mercy in the gospel, and then we show none of that to other people. It just demonstrates our iniquity. Let's live in a manner consistent with the steadfast love of God. Another encouragement. Walk humbly with the Lord. Walk humbly with the Lord. So let's not be proud. Christians, if we really understand what we preach, and I'm again, it takes a lifetime, and then even still we don't have it all figured out. I'm not saying that we do. But if we imperfectly but really begin to understand the gospel and how God has saved us and what Christ has done for us, we ought to be the most humble people on planet Earth. We have absolutely nothing to boast in. Nothing. Not only that, we ought to be the most self-aware people on the planet because we have God's word that accurately describes us all. We don't lie to ourselves about who and what we are. We know that we don't need to because our righteousness is not found in ourselves. We're not self-justifying. Rather than always wanting to vindicate myself, my posture is one of humility and love toward others. And then in humility, we live a life. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Repentance is not something we do one time. That's why sometimes it's, it's just sort of misrepresented in the way that it's often described. Repentance is a life posture. It's something that we're doing all the time. We're all the time looking at God's word and assessing ourselves and realizing I have failed to meet the test. And like, Father, I'm sorry. Forgive me for my sins. Give me grace that I might live for you. That's a humble posture before him. And so... Just kind of lastly, this is, this is more of an observation from me with respect to these things. Like, what do I do? Okay, trust Christ. That's the big one. All right, if God's word calls something sin, I'm going to flee from it. I'm going to strive to do justice. I'm going to strive to love kindness. I'm going to strive to walk humbly. There's a few things. Here's the really cool thing. It's kind of ironic to some, but it's cool, I think. When Christ and trusting Christ and resting in Christ is at the forefront of your mind, you will end up doing all that other stuff. That's the thing that sometimes is like a paradigm shift for people. Our thinking at the human level is, I need to focus most on my duty in order to be faithful. Well, we do think about our duty. We don't neglect that. We think about that. But we think and focus first and foremost on Christ with our duty kind of in the backdrop behind him. We live from our identity. When Christ is in the center of my gaze, I end up doing all these things anyway. But I'm doing it with the right motivation. And the cart is actually after the horse instead of this kind of ridiculous reverse engineering thing we often do. 
the title of this sermon series is Certain Redemption. Redemption is certain. And it's not because of us. It's because of God and it's because of his plan and his covenant of redemption that only Christ has accomplished. So with the prophet, we would ask, who is a God like the Lord? And God's people respond and say, there isn't one. Thanks be to God for his gospel. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And praise be to God for his faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you still in need. We come to you as your people who have been called by your name. We pray that you would continue to work in us and sustain our faith. We pray that you would continue to do what you have promised to do in conforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You have predestined us not only to salvation, you have predestined us to be like Jesus, and you're doing that work in our lives. We pray that you would keep doing that. We pray that we would be people who trust Christ completely. We pray that we would flee from sin. We pray that we would do justice and love kindness and walk humbly before you. Produce all of those things in us by your spirit, we ask. And we pray for ourselves now, Father, as we come to the Lord's table, that you would press upon us the reality and the weight and the gravity of our sin. And that as we consider that Christ has atoned for that and borne your wrath for that and has removed that from us, we pray that we would feel even anew that burden lifted today. We pray that we would rest in the fact that Christ has accomplished all the righteousness that we'll ever need and it's already counted to us. We pray that these things would wash over us as we come to the table this morning. So we ask that you would continue to minister to us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.